You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors, and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen. If you are black or not black, that is okay. It has been a week extra than it was supposed to be. My apologies. Many things have been happening. So I'm back after a a week hiatus, and I'm reading The Come Up, An Oral History of the Rise of Hip Hop by Jonathan Abrams best-selling author of All the Pieces Matter. I've never read that book. That's The Wire. Uh, The one I read, that's the one about The Wire. The one I read was Boys Among Men, which is his book about uh, prep-to-pro high school players. A really fascinating book Um, because, you know, if if you follow basketball, a lot of the high school to NBA guys got a bad rap, but actually a lot of them are some of the greatest players who ever played. The book covers those guys. But it also covers the hard luck cases. Uh, who comes to mind? I believe it's Lenny Cook. Might be wrong about that, but I feel like it's Lenny Cook is the name. It really hops out that he covered a lot. So, yeah, anyway, that's a great book. And then also Jonathan Abrams used to write for Grantland, and he's just an amazing writer in general. So I was really looking forward to this book, and I walked into the local library, and there it was sitting right there, hardcover, And I checked it out immediately. I didn't even have a library card. I got a library card immediately just to get this book. Uh, I should say I didn't have a library card in San Bernardino County where I'm at now. I had a Los Angeles County library card before. But anyway, I have the book now. I've renewed it for a couple weeks because it's been uh, difficult to get reading time. But now I have it. So this is going to be three different podcasts. I read the first, just about the first third of the book. So I'm just going to go through that. Some of the things that I'm, I've been thinking. And then and it's about hip hop. So I'll probably, you know, have a bunch of uh, tangents and stuff. But I don't know. Maybe it won't be too much because I did read that Nelson George hip hop book earlier in the year. And a lot of this first third of the book is stuff that, you know, I mainly know you probably know or you should know about hip-hop already. And um, if you don't, then fine. But I guess uh, mostly what I'll do is just point out a few things that I thought were interesting. It was an interesting experience reading this book uh, from the library because I had to use sticky notes. Sticky notes? Whatever. To take notes. Usually I just write directly in the book. But, okay. Um, basically, what is the book talking about in this first third? little brief summary. It's talking about, one, the creation of hip-hop, which is the story of DJ Cool Herc coming over from Jamaica, the the parties on the uh, street, using electricity to um, have these parties, stealing electricity, all of that. And then from there, it talks about the New York scene and then the L.A. scene. And there's a little bit of stuff here or there. I'm trying to see exactly how many chapters am I through. I'm through six chapters, so there's definitely more than just that. But that's basically what the first six chapters talk about. So that first thing, uh, I think I talked about this in the Nelson George podcast, so I'm repeating myself, but I just think it's the most fascinating thing about hip-hop. And I wrote this note here down, uh, wrote this note here as the electrical manipulation, hip-hop as sci-fi. Because that's really what it comes down to, and that... I talked about how it's downplayed in general, uh, this this connection that hip-hop has to STEM and the connection of like electrical engineering to hip-hop 
and how, uh, you know, obviously there's a music part that's creative and interesting about hip hop, but there's also the physical manipulation and the engineering that's cool about hip hop that was being practiced by these, um, well, I mean, DJ Cool Herc was the Jamaican who came over, but certainly, you know, I assume also Jamaicans back in Jamaica were definitely practicing DJing in a different type of way. I don't know if they had to manipulate electricity the way DJ Cool Herc did, but yeah, there's like this actual physical electrical manipulation that's going on that is really like, you know, STEM. And the reason I think that's important is, you know, black people in the sciences is often uh, were underrepresented. And part of that is a simple numbers game, like there are less black people in the sciences. And part of that is a lack of um, meaningful education in those areas, in the areas where black people are from. And part of it is just simply overlooking some of the things that black people have done in the sciences. Now, of course, we all grew up during Black History Month and had to learn about, uh, for me, George Washington Carver, didn't, I shouldn't say had to learn about, got to learn about whichever black history hero. But here's an example of one from, you know, relatively um, modern history, right? 50 years ago, starting to get older than modern history. But yeah, a black person innovating uh, in STEM and creating a new music, um, that's huge. And it's not often presented that way, right? It's just more or less presented as like, oh, they had this, they took these other people's music and just like fiddled around on a turntable for a while. Like, all right. I mean, yeah, sure. That's part of it. Fiddling around is how you create art in general. But another part of it is, you know, DJ Cool Herc and the other uh, pioneers of hip hop had to figure out a way to like be able to play music, you know, on the block. And in order to do that, it took a real knowledge of electricity and uh, wires and all of that kind of stuff. So I just think that's interesting. And I'm always going to bring it up whenever the origins of hip hop are discussed. So, uh, Get used to it. Okay, so that was my first note. The next note I had was on page nine. And this I just wrote about the ethos of hip-hop. I want to read this thing by Curtis Blow, who um, has a lot of really great uh, comments in the book. Him and then Cool Mo D so far have been my favorite in the book. And one of the things I like about it is, you know, there's a tendency with basketball or hip-hop or anything, really, for old heads to always, like, demean the, the youth or, you know, or gas themselves up, make themselves sound bigger. And Curtis Blood doesn't do that. He's super humble, I, I think, at least in the book. He comes off as being super humble. Um, he knows his place in history is important. And so he's not, like, you know, overly modest to the point where it's like, come on, man, be, we, we know you know who you are. But he's also not, like, full of um, unnecessary braggadocio. Of course, you've got to be braggadocious. It's hip-hop. But, yeah, I just thought he came off really good, or has so far in the book, talking about old hip-hop who's talented, how things came out, how things came into being. So yeah, I really enjoyed Curtis Blow's uh, comments in the book. And here he's talking about Cochlear Rock and he says, he was the man on the microphone, Cochlear Rock. He was more like a street dude, a street hustler. So he had the gift of gab and used to talk a lot of smack. Herc was from Jamaica. He's just getting to the Bronx and he meets Cochlear Rock and Cochlear Rock has all the lingo. So they became friends and partners. And I just like this because it's like game recognizing game and it's also just these two guys enjoying what they're doing and like, hey, let's just do this. You like this this thing that we're doing? Yeah, I, I like this thing that we're doing. Let's do this some more. And that's really the ethos of hip hop. And they discuss it throughout the book how hip hop and punk rock are related. But that's kind of the thing, you know. And of course, hip hop eventually gets monetized and was monetized like 
very early on, right? Like when we get to the Run DMC chapter, it becomes clear that the monetization of hip-hop has been happening within the first decade of hip-hop being out. Um, that was my Discord going off. That will not be edited out. But uh, the monetization of hip-hop happened within the first decade of hip-hop being out. Uh, but even though that's true, even though hip-hop was being monetized, it's always retained a little bit of that punk rock DIY or just hip-hop ethos of just doing this for fun, doing it for whatever, for lack of a better term, the streets. You can make a mixtape from anywhere, though. And yeah, you can go through any decade and find a person who came up just by making mixtapes, you know? Like, um, I think probably the two biggest ones for me, one from high school is 50 Cent. That was just, like, ridiculous. Has come up all of a sudden out of nowhere. We're like, oh, 50 Cent. You know, and then he was, like, the most famous rapper in the world for a stretch there, G-Unit, all that stuff, and he's still a mogul today. And then, like, Tyler, the creator, completely opposite end of the spectrum, right? He does his thing on the internet, is not, you know, from the hood like 50 Cent is. Um, it didn't get shot, didn't sell drugs or whatever, but still did his little mixtape thing or whatever. Bastard, loved that album. And all of a sudden, he's big as anything, and he's winning Emmys and Grammys big to this day. And after Tyler, the creator, there's probably 1,200 other examples, you know, so... Uh, that ethos of hip-hop, just doing it for fun, linking up with people who you vibe with, and then creating something and putting it out to the people, and then the people make it popular. Um, that's what makes hip-hop special. So even when it's monetized or capitalized on, it doesn't go away because it really is like a way of life. When somebody is into hip-hop, it's like a whole you know, way of being. And there's other types of music that do that too, for sure, but just... Um, I'm not reading a book about those ones, so, right? Okay, anyway, um, the next thing, and this, okay, so this part was actually, I wrote something down that I didn't, I, I don't remember, but I think maybe it was mentioned in other things I've read, I just didn't remember it, but the blackout, the blackout that happened in the Bronx, um, where all of a the sudden there was, um, there was no power in the city, and people just went in and started looting stores, and... From that, from the looting, all of a sudden you had all these people powered up with um, equipment they couldn't afford otherwise. And so uh, I believe what led to the blockout was a lightning strike. And Abrams talks about the idea that this is like, you know, because he has interludes in between all the interviews that he's doing. But um, he talks about how it's a very convenient idea that lightning struck and then hip hop was, uh, was electrified with all this new power. Um, it is tidy, it is cozy, but there are tons of people who are, uh, backing it up. Like DJ Clark Kent here says, um, it definitely helped me. I definitely got a turntable and mixer out of the situation. So, I mean, whatever, people can have faulty memories. It is kind of tidy, but I like it. So, you know, for what it's worth, the blackout. Um, and then, uh, then there's more talk about just the... You know, because even after, okay, so we have DJ Cool Herc, right? Okay, then we have this blackout and we have um, Rapper's Delight. But still, to get from Cool Herc to Rapper's Delight and then eventually to like Curtis Blow and Run DMC and all that, you know, we hadn't really defined what is this MC, this mic controller, the person who gets on the mic and says stuff. And um, Easy AD from the Cold Crush Brothers has a great line that really kind of explains the 
the uh, the origins of this hip hop thing. You know, now it seems so obvious. Like, yeah, you're writing a song, but like before, people would write a song and have like a few lines and then a a, a hook, and um, it's two minutes long. It's played on the radio, and the focus wasn't the lyrics, right? It would be the whole thing combined plus the person's voice. But Easy AD breaks it down like this. Uh, you could say I was just rhyming, but no, you was delivering information that was created by yourself. I just liked the art of being able to express yourself with words and being able to say it on a microphone. But the, the main part that I want to take away from there is you was delivering information that was created by yourself. And yeah, again, every song, not every song, many songs have lyrics. That's nothing new, but just the concept that so much of this was um, you know, information and that that was the most important part about hip hop was the information in the lyrics being transmitted to the audience. That's new. That's a new idea. And that's what made hip hop so seductive. Um, makes hip hop so seductive, I should say. Okay. All right. So then I'm going to move on from there. Well, there's a note before the note. A note before the note. Now I sound like Fred Moten again. Um, yeah, let me skip over this one note and then I'll come back to it. Because I wanted to just say how much of the disco thing is discussed in this book. Is that That's another interesting part that I don't think was pointed out as well in other books I've read about hip-hop. But he talks about how Blondie gave uh, a huge shout-out to hip-hop. I, I believe Blondie um, invited... Ooh, it must have been Africa Bombada on Saturday Night Live. So, yeah, Debbie Harry um, of Blondie was invited on Saturday Night Live for Valentine's Day. And she invited uh, the Funky 4 Plus 1, not Africa Bombada, my bad, um, in 1981. And then they also talk about how David Bowie was into it. And basically how hip-hop and disco had like a clash. I'm not saying that David Bowie's disco or something um, far from it. But what I'm saying is that uh the the hip-hop people were like d disco was on its way out and it was for kind of like the older more mature crowd and i'm not even sure it was on its way out as much as the younger kids just pushed it out by being into hip-hop and none of the disco people were down for it but then you had uh, and then also people weren't sure that like this was respectable music that could be played on the radio but then you had people like blondie championing it and david bowie championing it and then other people who were more closely associated to the community. But one of the points the book makes is that like, um, you know, established black artists didn't uh, really fuck with the music as much as like an established white artist did. And, you know, whatever, there could be many different reasons for that. Maybe they simply didn't recognize the music or maybe they were scared of the backlash of the establishment, or maybe they like legitimately thought the music was harmful. Maybe it was a pound cake situation like, uh, your man's Bill Cosby there. All right. So that kind of wraps up the the genesis of hip-hop era, like from, you know, 70, mid-70s to like early 80s, right? And then after that, we get Curtis Blow, Run DMC, all of that. But yeah, so I guess just to put a bow on it, like the parts I found interesting, hip-hop is sci-fi, the electrical manip manipulation of hip-hop, the blackout, the electrification of hip-hop, and then the... Um, the shout outs and the split from disco um, and hip hop coming into its own. And then on top of that, just the concept of the lyricism being this thing that was just distinct and different from all other forms of music that were out at the time. 
and that we're out into the present day like that that level of lyricism that kind of trans transmitting of um of uh information only exists in hip-hop okay i shouted out cool modi earlier and here he is i just thought he dropped a lot of knowledge right here and actually this piggybacks well in what i was just saying about how um some black folks didn't fuck with uh, hip-hop early on although this is particularly about black folks who are in hip-hop not not fucking with certain types of hip-hop within hip-hop. So this is specifically about rapper's delight and why some people didn't mess with it. But it also gets to like a psychological aspect of um of African Americans in general. So anyway, Cool Modi, without further ado, here you go. Uh, he says, I understood why there was a lot of MCs at the time that didn't like it. Talking about rapper's delight. Because I just think the social construct of oppression puts us against each other in many ways. In my opinion, many African Americans have a hard time giving other African Americans credit for achieving because so much of white America accepted that record, Rapper's Delight, and they started to define it from their perspective. And we're saying we've already been here. It's not new. So a backlash was on Sugar Hill that wasn't deserved because they didn't ask for it. That's, I just think that's a you know, that knocks out the park. We see that so many times. And I wrote the note here, get out. I think that why a lot of people didn't, black people didn't like get out. At least this, this is the way I felt about it. At least was like, people were talking about that movie. Like no black person had ever made a movie before. And it's like, Oh no, I think I've seen a few black folks make movies before, but maybe I'm mistaken. Anyway, the second half of the quote, and then we're done. Uh, but I'm not saying America does this intentionally. I'm just saying the infrastructure of racism, that plate is already set. So usually if you come out and quote unquote do something and it's black and we feel it from an African-American standpoint, we're very happy. As soon as white America embraces, us, embraces it, it separates us. And then you get the resentment. So it was never not really hip hop. We had just gotten more lyrically sophisticated at the time and the record was a great record. And looking back, if it wasn't for Sugar Hill, we might not have an industry as prominent as we have because of the success of Rapper's Delight. So I, I don't know, I really thought that was such a perfect and concise, um, really like sociological research paper, just explaining why so much you could and you could extrapolate this out to so many different things different types of hip-hop um get out the movie uh and all kinds of things where if it gets embraced by the mainstream america and it doesn't still have like a toe in the hood or a toe in just like pure black culture uh, there's gonna be like a you know kind of a sideways look at it um you know and as i a toe a toe has to be back in pure black culture. That's why I like Snoop Dogg. Like, that's not a crossover success. That's different. He's not a crossover success because he's always maintained, um, at least to me, I think not a crossover success because he's always maintained, um, you know, just being in the in a pure black space as well. I wonder if Steve Harvey, like that feels more like a crossover thing where it's like, I don't know if Steve Harvey would do, he probably, maybe he hasn't, I just missed it. Like, kings of comedy again where he's just working all black rooms and stuff like that um you know it wouldn't really make a difference to me because i wouldn't watch it but i would just be curious um if steve harvey would do such a thing <laughs> going to steve harvey stand up in 2022 just sounds like terrible he already has those videos where he um he like smokes a cigar and tells black people how they should Young black people always, how they should get their wealth up, 
you pull your pants up and you just you make money all right so that's um that's cool modi he has like five other quotes in the book and each one of them is that level he doesn't have any you know middling quotes they all knock it right out the park uh Okay, so then the last thing I really want to talk about in here, I think it's the last chapter that I talk about. No, I, I guess I just have, okay, two last chapters. Chapter five is all about Run DMC. I just got to say for the record that, and it's also about um, uh, Def Jam in general, but I, I really hate Run DMC. I always have. I think their music's terrible. And I thought that that was kind of reflected in the book with a lot of people not liking them because they were really the first commercialized um rap group now i will give run dmc credit for this they say in the book how they benefited because of the perfect storm of like hip-hop just becoming popular and um people being hungry for it and punk rock kind of priming it and run dmc also using punk rock ethos and like rock and roll to pump what they were doing like they even viewed some of what they were making as rock so I'll give him credit for admitting that I just still don't like Run DMC's music. And I never will. I, they're not good rappers in my mind. But, um, you know, whatever. They have some classic things that I'll still put on because it reminds me of a certain era of hip-hop. But, yeah, not for me. So, that chapter, though, very, very good. And more or less, like, you know, went along with my opinion of Run DMC in general. So, that was nice. Always nice to be validated. Okay. And then the last, um, the last thing was chapter seven, which goes into LA and really talks a ton about how there was this like LA electro rap scene. And probably the first time I ever heard anybody talk about this in any kind of like intelligent way was Vince Staples on the breakfast club. And he was talking about how, uh, there was this, there was this scene in LA and I can't remember, I think it's Big Fish Theory where he says he's going to try to, you know, basically make an homage to that era. And um, it's just an interesting, like, kind of little, you know, uh, time capsule that's lost to history. We don't, I don't, most people don't really listen to hip hop from like 1980 to 1983 that was coming out of L.A. That's like not an era of hip hop people listen to. And it's this interesting, like, electro, disco, hip-hop-y sounding stuff. And not a lot of the artists are huge. And then, you know, what we get out of that is the world-class wrecking crew and then eventually Dr. Dre. That's that's the part that everybody pays attention to, like, world-class wrecking crew and Dr. Dre. But that little electro thing is interesting. And one more interesting thing about this era was the amount of people who were going to um, skating rinks. Like, skating rinks spread hip-hop. And I remember there's that, I don't know the name of the movie. You know the movie I'm talking about with Lil Bow Wow and Big Boy. And it's, it's called, like, ATL, whatever. But they're skating in it. And I just never really thought of skating in black culture as being a thing. Because I didn't go skating when I was a kid. And by then, the X Games had started and rollerblading and all of that. But this is, again, like, that little time period where it was huge. And the reason was, they explain it in the book, like, basically, you could play hip-hop it's skate, it's skate parks. You couldn't get it in at nightclubs and stuff. People were still looking to dance to different music, especially adults, but skate, skate, uh, I keep calling them skate parks. It's skating rinks, right? Skating rinks, um, were places where you could actually get some, get some hip hop off and get the kids there. And, uh, you could have complete control. And they named two skate parks in Los Angeles. One was called Skateland, and the other one was called, hold on, I have it here. 
Juggling Skateland and uh, Dudos. Dudos. Very weird name. Um, oh, no, no. Skateland and World on Wheels. Skateland and World on Wheels. But yeah, so anyway, um, I just thought that was interesting. And then, okay, to tie it into myself, you know, because I'm selfish. Uh, down the street where I'm at right now, there's a skating rink that's been open since the 1980s. And I just want to know if they had a hip hop scene back in the day. Cause like it's been open since 1982. That's perfect. Or no, it's been open since 1980. That's literally the perfect time. And this is specific about Southern California. This book was saying specifically in Southern California, hip hop was huge in the skating rinks. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna mosey on down there and see if I can find an old timer to talk to me about um, hip hop, which is interesting. Like, you know, there's that KRS line in that song um, where he says, he says hip hop as an art form isn't even 30 years old. And um, now it's like 50 years old. So that's that song must have come out 20 years ago. But the point is, is that I need to go find an old timer who can remember the early 1980s at the skating rink to talk to me about hip hop. So that's cool. Um, gonna do that, hopefully, uh, unless I forget. Okay. So that was the first six chapters of the book. I'm going to do the middle, like, seven or eight chapters next and we're going to be moving into the stretching up into um the early 90s right that's we will get to the early 90s yes and then after that right yeah 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 we'll definitely get to the early 90s and maybe a little bit further out than that but after that then we'll do the uh, the last third of the book so altogether three podcasts for this book it's non-fiction you know you got to split it up but yeah i'll probably do chapters seven through 13 and that will end at 1995 it also jumps around from different locations so far we've really just done new york and la but um you know we'll jump around a little bit more i'm trying to look here so we did one through six seven through 13 is not bad might have to do four might have to do four podcasts about this because there's just so much um and it's hip-hop but maybe not. Uh, 23 total chapters. We just did the first six. Yeah, you know what? We'll be able to do it. We're going to do it. We will do seven through 15 next week. Seven through 15. How about that? So that'll take us all the way to the early 90s with a little bit of um uh, crossover into the 2000s. And I'm seeing chapter 12 here covers Riverside, California. Shout out to the Inland Empire. Uh, the place where I was raised, not born, but, you know, reared. So, yeah, we're going to get a whole, we're going to be going all across the country because it's got Riverside here, it's got Miami. So in the next eight chapters, we will, we've only covered New York and LA in the first couple chapters. And in fact, six out of the first seven chapters are New York. But then we eventually go to Philadelphia, Compton, Riverside, Miami, Atlanta, Houston, Memphis, New Orleans, the Bay Area, and Beverly Hills. So all of that on next week's, or in two weeks on the podcast. Um, that'll be like New Year's. So, you know, Merry Christmas until then. And yeah, uh, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, whatever you got, YouTube. Uh, the music is by The Keep Running. You can check them out in the show notes. Uh, if you want to read some things that I've written, uh, they're in the show notes. And um, 
yeah, we will be back to every two weeks knocking podcasts out. Definitely reading this. And then I think after this, uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and do the book by Justin Tinsley about uh, um, Notorious B.I.G. Because uh, I hate calling him Notorious B.I.G. That's such like a, that's what, that's what like a, news reporter would say big i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna do the book by big after that so we'll just have back-to-back hip-hop so it's just gonna be a lot of hip-hop for the next four podcasts um and i'm for i'm for one i'm excited about it so uh yeah i will see you in two weeks or you will listen to me in two weeks and until then please stay safe Stay black and keep reading. Merry Christmas. And there's time enough at last. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. That's not fair.